Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, U.S. Gamers' official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. With me, as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, everybody, and I am joined by my cats. Cats, plural? Cats. Well, one... Okay, sorry. Uh, I was going to say there was three cats, then there was two, then there was one. Now there's none. As always, we talk about RPGs, big and small. I mean, Western, Eastern. We love them all. Uh, you can reach us... At Twitter, at the underscore cap off for me. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. US Gamer is on all of the usual channels on US Gamer Net. A little bit later, we're going to be talking about number, I think, 12 on our top 25 mm-hmm. RPG list with special guest John Learned and Mike Williams. But first, let us take a moment, Nadia, and celebrate the 10th anniversary of the fan translation of Mother 3, which Maybe the one of the more iconic fan translations of an RPG? Yes, definitely so. That was by uh, Clyde Tomato Mandelin, I think is how you pronounce his last name. I, I apologize if, if I'm butchering it. And uh, Clyde is actually... Um, I played his translations, although I didn't really know it, like, way back in the day when I played, like, fan translations on, like, my Pentium 1 or whatever it was. Like, um, if you played Bahamut Lagoon back in the day, that was his translation. And that was also an excellent translation, but he really he really did a, a, just a spectacular job on Mother Three, uh, him and his team, because of course he had a whole team working with him. I can't believe it's been ten years, though. Holy crap! I had no idea that it had been ten years. And I, the thing, the main thing that I remember is that they actually went as far as to do an entire strategy guide uh, and I translate that as well. I, that was a really cool piece of uh, collectible memorabilia. It is. Um, I actually have that. I have the, there's like, they made a, a Franklin badge that uh, came with it as well. And it's, I still have that on my keychain. It's like a really nice, heavy nickel accessory. Uh, pretty good for whacking someone in the head if you need to. Have you whacked anybody on the head before? Uh, disappointingly, it? no. My, my time will come. See, Nadia is a lot more violent than I ever like gave her credit for. It's actually kind of terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I, I I know how to hit people. I used to. I'm actually a blue belt in karate. It's been a long time Ooh. since I took it, though. I'm actually a black belt in karate. Are you really like Shotokan or something else? Taekwondo, actually. Oh, that's amazing. I have a friend who's actually. Uh, I don't know if she's a black belt, but she's uh, she's really big into Taekwondo. That's pretty cool. Don't be too impressed. Uh, impressed. My parents just decided to pay the amount of money that was required to get me to eventually the black belt. <laughs> <laughs> well, even if they, if you were in a, as they call it, a McDojo, it's still, uh, still, you can still be pretty lethal if you, if you hit someone in the right way. It's better than just flailing around, you know? I was definitely in a McDojo, but my instructor was kind of a maniac and really, 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 really loved doing martial arts and kind of worked us to death. So wow. I definitely earned my belt, I think. But It sure sounds like it. Congratulations. Well, thank you. That was only about 20 years ago at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Muscle memory is a hell of a thing, man. You'd be surprised. I would be surprised. But so Mother 3... It is 10 years old. It's, I'd say, one of the most wanted kind of RPGs um, from a lot of people. I think a lot of people wish that there would be an officially localized version for the Nintendo Switch. You uh, played it originally. You wrote an article talking a little bit about just kind of what it meant to you. and It seemed to mean a lot. It did. Actually, I played um, played Mother 3 directly after playing uh, Earthbound. This was in 2008. 
And uh, I actually recently told the story on Retronaut, so I apologize if this is a, a double story for any of you listening out there. Uh, 2008 was a year when a lot of people I knew died. Like, my mother-in-law died suddenly. Uh, a lot of my great-aunts and great-uncles, who my family was pretty close to, they died. Uh, my childhood dog died, which was really devastating. That was, that was Rush. He was my dog, as the name probably implies. So, uh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's he, always he rough was, losing a childhood pet. It really is. Um, I've lost a few. I mean, you were older, they were older. It, it kind of sucks the way time works. But uh, Mother 3, as I explained in the article I wrote, you can read that now on, on US Gamer, is um, it's not as, definitely not as cheerful and happy as Earthbound. And Earthbound is a pretty dark game at times, but it, overall it contains a very colorful, positive message about friendship and unity and love and all that. Mother 3, God, I think you have your kind of moment of togetherness and love and unity, like, in the first 20 minutes of the game, it just kind of goes downhill from there. <laughs> so, that was a game that, the main character, one of the main characters, fa- uh, Father Flint, he's like kind of a dude in a, in a cowboy hat, uh, when he receives word that his wife dies, which isn't really a spoiler because it happens very early in the game, um, he goes berserk. And one thing I noticed, I noted in my article is that you don't get to see, uh, characters from JRPGs go berserk when their loved ones die. Uh, they're usually, they usually kind of just take it with a certain amount of grace or in the case of like any sort of personal tragedy, like, um, Final Fantasy IX being a good example. It's like you have your moment of, oh, what is this world? What am I? What is going on? And then, they recover and they're fine. You know what I mean? That doesn't really happen in Mother 3. Flint falls apart and he never really recovers. And it's really up to, to Lucas to take care of himself from then on out. And just, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say that Mother 3 has a positive message about death, but it definitely has a, a, a realistic message about grief. And I, I appreciate that and I still think that holds up. Grief is an interesting thing to explore in JRPGs. I, I think that you make a good point when you say that JRPGs will peer, they will have loss, they will have death, but yeah. a lot of characters just kind of go, oh man, that's really sad, and then they move on, right? <laughs> you have that tragic moment, but it doesn't stick with them in no. quite the same way as what you were just describing. No, um... And uh, like I said in my piece, uh, grief is like that. Grief is not something that you just get over. You have your good days, you have your bad days. Um, unfortunately, some people fall apart completely, like we saw with Flint, and it kind of leaves the loved ones, like, again, Lucas, just kind of hanging. And, I mean, uh, Lucas lost his, his mother and his brother as much as Flint lost his his wife and, and son and he's not there for Lucas when Lucas needs him most. And I find that really, really sad, but really striking at the same time. So we ended up picking Earthbound as our kind of RPG for the top 25 RPG list. But uh, where does Mother 3, how far back behind Earthbound do you kind of feel Mother 3 falls? I almost feel like they're... Like they're, you almost mentioned them in the same breath. Like you have your Earthbound, you have your Mother Three, and they go together well. I would still give the spot to Earthbound though, because yeah, um, Mother Three takes a lot of risks, but so does Earthbound. And there was really nothing like Earthbound. There still isn't, other than Mother Three. And so, as the pioneer of those two games, um, I 
I'd still kind of give it to Earthbound over Mother 3. I feel like Mother 3 and like Seiken Densetsu 3 are like one of the last two kind of uh, 16-bit type RPGs. I know that Mother 3 came out on the GBA, but it's Mm -hmm. basically in that kind of category. One of the last ones to really have mystique because a lot of them ultimately did finally come out on current systems or and are relatively widely available whereas mother three you have to really make an effort to kind of get yeah um especially now more than ever seeing as uh, the state of roms what they are now that's i think one reason why people really want to see an official translation and maybe also because in 2016 like rumors were very very strong that we were getting an official mother three translation and nothing ever came of that and i still wonder who was saying what? What what happened there? Was it ever going to happen? It was rescinded at the last second? Was it just never going to happen at all? Um, you have Nintendo making fun of its own fans, begging for Mother 3 in, in E3 presentations and stuff like that. It's uh, Everyone's just kind of having a lark with it now, and it's a little disappointing. Yeah, Nintendo put Mother... Uh, they translated the original Mother, and everybody was like, oh, right, this is it. Mother 3 is yeah. gonna not happen. Yeah, <laughs> totally not gonna happen. Everyone was like, oh, it's coming out to the Wii U. Oh, okay, it's coming out to 3DS, and maybe for the Switch? I don't know. I, I'm a never-say-never person. I mean, if we got Metroid Prime 4 coming, and we got, of course, Samus Returns as well, that just goes to show, you know... It, sometimes a franchise can sleep for a very long time. I mean, hell, we got a Mega Man 11. So I can't really say, oh, we're never getting Mother 3, we're never getting an official translation, but uh, I just feel like that moment was there, and it passed, and what happened? I'd rather they just remade it for the Switch rather than porting a GBA game. That would be... Um, it's interesting when you, when you say that, because just given how what Mother 3 went through to even become a GBA game is kind of crazy. And, I mean, the reason we're talking about Mother 3 in the first place beyond the 10th anniversary is because Clyde released a whole chronicle of Mother 3 and its history and what he went through to translate it. But, uh, of course, it started life as an N64 game. It was announced heck long before the N64 even hit shelves. Like, it was uh, always on the, the coming soon list, and it was... Mother 3 was there for a very, very long time until it just finally got cancelled because um, I don't think Ape really knew how to make it work in 3D, and I'm not surprised, really. Yeah, it was supposed to be on the 64DD, right? I remember that was the first time I ever heard of... That was the first time I ever heard of Earthbound. Or maybe not, but I mean, I remember there was a lot of talk about Mother coming to the 64DD, and I guess, I guess it never did. No, um... It just it had it ran into too many development problems, I think. And even when you kind of saw what they were working on, it just kind of had that sort of ugly NCC4 look. So, given how gorgeous the sprites are and how well done they are in Mother Three for for GBA, I'm glad that we eventually got that instead. But uh, it's still interesting to see. Yeah, sadly, it doesn't seem like we're ever going to get a sequel because the creator has more or less moved on. Yeah, he's he said that he's just kind of done with Mother, and I think unlike a lot of creators, he really means it. Uh, Shigesato Atoy is not just a game developer. He is uh, like a, a copywriter, like a very big copywriter in Japan. So he's kind of got his own life going on. He wanted to make this video game series. He made it. He's probably done with it. Uh, I think there's a fan Mother 4 being worked on right now. But um, well, and then again, you have like this, the uh, spiritual successors like Undertale and what have you. So, outside of Mother 3, are you playing anything uh, RPG-related right now? 
I'm actually still working through uh, Valkyrie Chronicles 4. How far are you? How far am I? I actually, um, without getting into spoiler territory, I am actually on chapter, it's either 9 or 10. Okay, so you're, you're moving right along. I'm moving right along, but I suspect I'm not quite as close to the end as I feel like I am. Um, you're not. Just, no, I didn't think so, because looking at the, uh, the R&D, looking just all these blank spaces I still have to fill, I was like, yeah, <laughs> I still got a way to go. It's going to be a bit. Yeah. Uh, and it, this is where it starts getting really hard. Yeah, I can tell already. Um, I was introduced to the resident Valkyrie. Valkyria, yep. Valkyrie, whatever you call them. I saw that you had uh, one of your characters. You really like the sniper with the hat. Oh, oh, Norad. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> 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 he actually, like, he drives me crazy, though, because he has the voice of Marco from uh, Radiant Historia, which is another game I played recently. So I'm like, God, this guy, whoever he is, he just plays his little tiny, like, guys with, like, weird hats. T- talk about typecasting. So Valkyria Chronicles 4 is holding your attention, huh? Yeah, um, I mean, I like the first one a lot, and the fourth plays a lot like it, and the thing I like most about it, and this is something I'm writing as we speak and will be up by the time this podcast is up, is uh, I really like the squad stories. I think they're a lot of fun, and they tell you a lot about the characters, and I think that's something that was missing from the first game. It's definitely a strength for Valkyrie Chronicles 4, because as we've discussed, the the main roster isn't quite as strong as the first game's. Or you're going to want to play fast because you've got Pokemon Let's Go next month. I know. Oh, man, I'm excited for that, too. And we have the, the Master uh, master Trainer challenges. I'm actually excited for Pokemon Let's Go. I think it looks like a lot of fun. Every time a video comes out, yeah. people are like, oh, this looks so dumb. It's for children. Oh, why would you make the game so, so like, you know, dumbed down? And it's like, man, it just looks like, you know, Pokemon red and blue and yellow, but just with these fun little additions. And I'm looking forward to it. I think it's okay for it to go back to basics a little bit, um, as long as they don't completely strip down the main generation. I'm fine with the main generation staying the same and then doing this kind of like side story type thing. Yeah, I know I was yeah. really down on Pokemon Let's Go earlier, but I have been really enjoying Pokemon Go over the past over the summer, and I am really looking forward to seeing this like kind of larger, somewhat more complex adventure and seeing how it ties into Pokemon Go. Yeah, um, I have to give uh, Niantic and Game Freak credit because I really like the way they're implementing Pokemon Go and Pokemon Let's Go and, and mainline Pokemon by, like, say, for example, using those that Professor sort of series, the, the two Professor videos, to talk about Meltan, the new Pokemon, who is actually kind of cute. Meltan's so lame. No, Meltan's adorable. I Did don't you see like- the video where they're just, like, you know all kind of grouped together and, and like, you know, eating metal and stuff. They're adorable. Very lame. Very, very lame. <laughs> well, they combine into something that hopefully isn't quite as lame, I guess. I think people are mostly skeptical of it because it is a lot simpler and because it's based on a mobile game, which, mm-hmm. I mean, fair play, right? But I suppose we're going to see. I know that my partner, Pokemon Go was finally what got my partner into Pokemon, and we're both looking forward to playing Pokemon Let's Go because it has very simple co-op aspects to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, maybe it'll make Barack Obama like Pokemon, because I don't know if you saw that video the other day. He said he was, like, chastising people for not voting, and he's, like, you know, saying, oh, I don't care about politics as an excuse not to vote. I don't care about Pokemon, but it's still around. (laughs) Wow, Barack. Wow. Yeah. You know, I I, I followed you through thick and thin, but this is it. I I feel like 
Not the drone warfare. It's your your hating on Pokemon. <laughs> this is it. This is it. Gone. Done. Well, I'm I'm back on Persona Five, Nadia, for the time oh, being. Yep. Good. I'm I finally beat the third dungeon. <laughs> trying to remember which one that was. That's the one with the kind of the gangster Yakuza guy. Oh, him, the guy who, um, yeah, yeah, kind of looks actually, speaking of mother, he looks a lot like Porky. Yeah, the game has really expanded a lot, I would say, in the summertime. Like, I, I've added so many different locations, and there are mm-hmm. so many different people to meet up with at this point, with uh, the different social links, that uh, every night I'm basically hitting it and going, who the heck is that? <laughs> and then like googling it and being like oh i'm supposed to do- oh okay oh oh great so like there's a fortune teller in shinjuku for example yep. that i was yep. like going and visiting and i've i forgot all about my teacher who's also in a maid service yeah uh that was kind of a- okay i actually appreciate that story for what it is because it's talking about like i can't remember why she was in a maid service but i think maybe she wasn't making enough money or she had debts or something and just the fact that you could make her do your laundry is like, um, you know what? I'm not going to court you. You're my teacher. <laughs> I I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about how weird it is, but I think so much of Persona 5 is, I don't want to say the seedier side of things, but mm-hmm. it explores a lot of alternative culture, a lot of kind of the alternative sides of Tokyo in a way that, say, Persona 4 definitely doesn't. For example, yeah. uh, the way that your character is hanging out in Shinjuku. And there's like, uh, when I'm hanging out with Makoto, I think her name is. Um, Makoto, yeah. Motorcycle and folk. she's visiting Shinjuku and she almost gets dragged into a hostess club. And it's like, ugh, right? And yeah. there's also um, the bar with the, the journalist who's drinking um, with oh, the great. transgender bartender who's amazing. And... Yeah, there's a lot of characters who have been who were at in a high place and or a good a good place in their profession or something like that and have kind of fallen out of it and are trying to either find their way back or trying mm-hmm. to adjust to their current lifestyle and I think there's a lot going on in its kind of depiction of a different side of Tokyo, which I find somewhat I find so much interesting, so that's why I'm kind of willing to roll with the teacher storyline a little bit, even if it's weird that I'm having her do my laundry or whatever. Yeah, like I said, like the part where you have her do your laundry, that's weird, but I really appreciate the story for what it is, because when you, I think when you do, like, court her, you just find out she's just really lonely, and uh, she wants a friend more than anything, and I kind of feel bad for her. So I know a lot of people who, who went, who, uh, became girlfriend or became boyfriend girlfriend with her um i'm still filled with regret because i tried to go for makoto but i passed up the goth doctor who is really cute and has illegal drugs yeah she was was she's another example of a character who ended up kind of being disgraced because of somebody who kind of set her up in a bad way so yeah she has a good story as well a lot of adult characters that you're courting in this game con- compared to Persona 4. Yeah. <laughs> I guess when you got it, you got it, I guess. Like in Persona 4, it's pretty much all high schoolers, right? Whereas in Persona 5, you have multiple adults who kind of have the hots for you, and that's weird because you're like 17. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you still can't have any same-sex relationships, which is like, come on, people. 
Yeah, well, this game has a weird outlook on same-sex relationships, as we've discussed ad nauseum. Yes, indeed. Although, as we also discussed, they did they did pretty well with Lala. And we're not going to talk about the fact that you can work in her bar and you're underage, but she herself is cool. <laughs> well, the fact they're even allowed into the bar even though you're underage, but... Oh, right. But, well, she's like, hey, you shouldn't be in here. That's, uh, that's you know, she, she said her piece. Well, the journalist is trying to buy you a drink, and yeah. Lala's like, no, <laughs> bad. What is the drinking age in Japan? I think it's, I want to say it's like 20. Okay, because it's 19 in Ontario. I could be wrong, though. It could be 18, but I think mm-hmm. it's, I want to say it's like 18 in England and 20 in Japan. Right. So, in any case, I am enjoying Persona 5, uh, even even though I'm in a quote-unquote slow part while I'm waiting for the... I'm still a day away from the uh, the, the deadline where they show the, the, the guy that I finally changed his heart. Like, I'm waiting for him to change his heart so that I can continue on with the story. And yeah, give, uh, it just given the, the current political climate, it's just really satisfying to see them all just kind of, like, get up on screen and admit, oh, God, I'm a terrible person. Just put me away right now. Yeah, it's a little cathartic, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. And uh, I'm curious to see kind of where this all goes. Um, so, but I, yeah, I'm just, I'm enjoying the world. I still enjoy the con- the the systems. I, I like all of the characters for the most part. I, I seem to be falling into a relationship with um, the first girl you meet, the one who's a model, and oh, I can never remember. Yeah, Aunt On. Lady yeah. On. yeah. Uh, it's funny that you remember the names and I don't remember the names, even though I'm playing it right now. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, she's, uh, she's the one that I'm kind of falling into a relationship with, but maybe it's because none of the other characters like really stand out to me. Though there's that hacker girl, maybe I'll end up going out with her. Oh, Futaba. Yeah. Um, she was still a really popular cosplay choice at Otakon this year. I mean, she was... Gee, I wonder why. Yeah, I can't even begin to imagine. She was huge at Otakon 2017, which is the summer after the game was released. Uh, but yeah, people people love Fuka- uh, Futaba. Best girl, I think, Heroin calls her. All right, we're going to continue on and continue on to our Top 25 RPG countdown, so don't go away. All right, we're back with special guest John Learned. Hey, John, long time no see. Hello, Blood God Believers. And also joining me is our reviews editor for the second week in a row, Mike Williams. Hello, hello, folks. How's everyone doing today? And I have brought you two together because you are, well, the people that I know who like the game best. That is the next entry in our top 25 RPG list, which continues onward to number 12. See if you recognize this RPG. Answer. There are a lot of politicians on Coruscant, Master. I could spend decades slaughtering them and still not make a dent. And it is not as if I walked into the Senate chambers with a carbonite explosive. I was very discreet. Yes, the clip you just heard was from Star Wars, The Knights of the Old Republic. And that voice you just heard was from everybody's killer robot, favorite killer robot, HK-47. And uh, guys, you you are huge fans of Star Wars, The Knights of the Old Republic. John, when I put the list of RPGs in front of you, you were like, oh my god, I gotta, 
I gotta, I gotta be on this episode. And I was like, okay, like I've <laughs> saved, I've been saving you for this one. And Mike, once upon a time, a couple years ago, when it came time to pick our what we considered to be the best Star Wars games, you jumped on the Kotor train. But uh, I suppose we should start with just what is your, what are your individual histories with Knights of the Old Republic? Uh, how about you, John? Uh, well, I, you know, I was playing nothing but RPGs on PlayStation 2 at that point, and it was all JRPGs, like everybody else. And then um, I was, I had graduated from college in 03, and I moved, and one of my college roommates bought this fancy pants new PC, and he and I moved cities together, and um, he's like, I have to buy a new video game to make this this expensive computer I just bought worthwhile because we were broke and we didn't have jobs. So he's like, I've got to justify this. So I'll spend more money on a video game. So um, Knights of the Old Republic had just come out on PC. It had been on Xbox first and we didn't have an Xbox in, in the house that we were living in. We're like, we both really wanted to play it. So I was kind of skeptical about it because I'd never really played a lot of Western RPGs at this point. Like I'd never... I wasn't a big PC guy growing up. I had an Apple II and stuff, but like I'd never played Fallout. I'd never played Baldur's Gate. I'd never played Diablo, for God's sake. So um, it was a real eye-opening experience for me, like playing this game and like thinking, this is how the other half has been doing it for so long. And now I get it. <laughs> the other half. <laughs> yeah, like how the other half live, man. And um, yeah, and I've been a junkie for Bioware ever since. Like this game made me a, a total Bioware believer. And um, I don't, you know, I used to replay it once, like years ago, I used to replay it once a year, all, all, you know, for maybe three, two, three, four years, but it's been a little while. So getting back to it was a real pleasure. Uh, I'm mostly the same way. It was um, at the time I owned an Xbox. So when that came out, I'm, I've always been a very big Star Wars fan, so that was a, a no-brainer to pick it up and and play it. And I had not played any of the Bioware like I had heard of Baldur's Gate before then, but I had never actually played any of those games. And that that was a sort of sea change for me of of switching over to being not just a Bioware believer, but a believer in CRPGs in general. And that's when I started, uh, I think once Steam started picking up is when I started really going back and playing a lot of those older games, uh, like the original Fallout or Planescape Torment or things like that. And uh, I, I think of, for a lot of people that was the case. Like, that was the gateway into that, that sort of genre or style of RPG. Yeah, that was the moment when Bioware, I think, really broke into the mainstream because I was also in college when Knights of the Old Republic came out. And I remember that it was a very big deal. And even though everybody was talking about how buggy it was, I also remember that all my friends who owned Xboxes bought this game immediately and were completely obsessed with it. And I had known of Bioware before that, obviously, because of Baldur's Gate and such. But that was the first time that I was really seeing people on console play it. And I think it's fair to say that Nest of the Old Republic was a part of a sea change uh, at that time as the Xbox was 
very PC centric, very similar to the PC. It made it pretty easy for companies like Bethesda and BioWare in particular to make the leap over to the Xbox. And that was the beginning of a a change that would kind of culminate in the next generation when we saw games like Mass Effect and Oblivion and then Skyrim really experience extreme mainstream success. But Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic it was under development from 2000 onward. And uh, it was Bioware had gotten a hold of the license and they were basically given a choice. They could either make a game that was basically set in episode two kind of era, episode one, episode two prequels, or they could make one that was set several thousand years beforehand And BioWare chose the latter, probably for the best, because they wanted kind of the freedom to be able to play around in their own setting. And while there's been uh, plenty of other supplementary material in that era, they haven't really been joined by other companies or other media producers for the most part. That has been their particular era. And in fact, (laughs) the, uh, the canon of uh, Star Wars The Old Republic remains somewhat in question ever since Disney bought it because while they haven't outright ruled it out of it and there's been a lot of Easter eggs suggesting that Star Wars The Old Republic is definitely still part of the canon, it also hasn't really been kind of outright referenced. But um, So yeah, Star Wars The Old Republic, it a little bit different from kind of your traditional... RPG, uh, the RPGs that would come out from Bioware later, later Bioware games would be kind of more action-oriented. This was really the bridge, I would say, between, say, the Baldur's Gate D&D-type uh, system where you had basically dice rolls happening in the background while you were attacking versus something what we would see somewhat later. Um, uh, people seem somewhat split on the, uh, the, the combat system, and I'm kind of curious what you guys think. You know, I had never experienced anything like that before. Nothing, something that wasn't so D&D heavy. And it, from what I understand, um, <clears throat> Knights of the Old Republic uses mo- like modified third edition D&D rules. And, um, you know, again, coming from, you know, the Final Fantasies and the Dragon Quest and stuff like that, where like you just go to the next town and they sell better armor. So you buy better armor. It's not really like that with a lot of Western games, especially those that are very D&D based where you have to really pay attention to, you know, it's looking at armor classes. It's looking at, um, ranges of ranges of damage, not just like this does 10 damage. It's like between three and seven. So I found that pretty off putting at first. And, um, but the actual, actual combat, like the act of it, I still think it holds up pretty well. I, I, it's a little clunky, but it gives you, it freezes um, the combat right from the get-go so you can kind of make some decisions so it's not completely in real time like later Bioware stuff. Um, and it gives you a lot of choice. Do you want to use weapons right away? Do you want to send guys, you can be as tactical as you want to be and, and send people in for melee while other other characters stay back and shoot while other you maybe have another character that uses force powers or you can just meat grind through it and just keep melee attacking everybody or just keep attacking to see if it works out and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't and i think giving you that freedom of choice makes for a pretty good combat system yeah i I, i'm 
gonna go on record as saying that I miss the pause and play style of older Bioware games. Uh, I, I don't think that we get a lot of them that, that style of combat anymore. And I miss it. Mm. Uh, because the, the real time sort of requires a certain amount of reflexes and, and, and playable skills. Uh, whereas turn base can sometimes be a little bit static. Whereas that, older Bioware Knights of the Old Republic system is sort of splitting the difference between the two. Like there's still sort of tactical thought needed uh, in sort of where you are in the battlefield and which players are moving forward and whatnot. But there's also time to pause and think about the strategy overall. I agree with Mike in the sense that I, at the time I didn't particularly like Dragon Age Origins, which sort of was the last time that Bioware really got into that kind of classical isometric type uh, styling with its uh, with this combat system. But I guess I have always just been a much more strategic-minded person than I have ever been a, a kind of action-oriented person uh, with a lot of these games. So I, even though like I really like Mass Effect for the most part, I put it on this list... I sort of just kind of miss the ability to pause, take stock of my actions, mm-hmm. set up all of my different abilities, and then watch my characters go to work. Especially when, like, you concoct the perfect plan. Like, there's no greater feeling in the world that, than running into a room, pausing the game, or having the, you know, the combat start so it pauses, and you just kind of map everything out in your head and then watch it play out. It's just so, so satisfying. Yeah, and, and that's one of the reasons that I really enjoy uh, Larian Studios' Divinity Original Sin yeah, totally. and Original Sin 2, because they are some of the only games that are still coming out that have that style of play. I want to go on a limb and say that there hasn't actually been that much good Star Wars out there in the past uh, from a story standpoint, especially recently. So Star Wars the Old Republic Knights of the Old Republic I think stands out in people's minds because it really broadened the universe. Um before that we had the prequels, we had the sequels, but it was kind of the Skywalker family drama for the most part and the Old Republic dispenses all of that. It really gives you a sense of the grandeur and the scope of the of the Republic and the history of the Republic and the history of the Jedi and being set in the midst of this huge, amazing conflict between uh, the, the Republic and the, the Sith Empire. You can kind of understand why people are really into this particular setting because it... It it was nice to get away from like the three planets that defined the original trilogy, if you if I may so say so myself. It's not on friggin' Tatooine though; it is on Tatooine. Damn it! <laughs> well, it's the the timeline that it sets for itself is really inconsequential. It, I mean, this is more of like this is a Star Wars story that exists if the Skywalkers had never existed. Like if there were still Sith, if there were still Jedi, because like. Everything else is practically the same. The clothes, even though it's <laughs> millennia earlier, all the clothes are the same, all the weapons are the same. So 
it's it really feels more like an alternate like these things would still be happening if the the skywalkers had never ever ever been a factor kind of thing and yeah i totally agree i think there's a lot of crappy star wars stories out there like a whole lot and i think that we're pretty lucky that like bioware came from a D and D background. They had people that clearly knew how to write long campaigns and complicated stories with lots of NPCs that gave you interesting things to do. And I really think it was a sort of a confluence of both. We're making a star Wars game. We're coming from a dungeons and, De- and dragons background. And we have sort of the, the resources and um, an ability to make a very large game out of this, that, that kind of gave us such a good star Wars story. Yeah, and I I also like at least for me, yeah, for the most part there weren't a lot of great games like the the Jedi Knight games sort of backed their way into something that was vaguely interesting like Dark Dark Forces, Dark Forces 2 Jedi. Yeah. Um Rebel Assault was horrible. I'm trying to think of what else I had played before that that was Star like most of them were just not great. Um, and this was a story that not only, uh, was even decent on the basic level, but actually sort of filled out, uh, things that the novels or maybe the films themselves couldn't do. So just really thinking about your integration in the force and how the Jedi and all that work, uh, in a way that we didn't get until uh, probably a little bit later. Like, I mean, even the prequels. Eh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I used to be a prequel apologist. I'm going to out myself by saying this Whoa, now. Whoa, prequel and, um, apologist right here. I know. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, like, there, there are things I, I, I enjoy about the prequels and sort of the weird, uh, political bent of them actually still sort of works. But yes, overall, I don't necessarily think they are great movies, and I, I I tend to find that there's not as much nuance there. There's more nuance in the expanded universe than there is in Star Wars the films, in certain aspects. And Star Wars isn't allowed to have nuance because the original Star Wars was uh, it was a fairy tale, and subsequently they. It was so successful, they were like, oh, well, we can't just have a happy, happily ever after type ending, so I guess we got to make more. And then they were trying to make it a huge adventure serial, but with some interesting emotional type things, but it's always kind of hemmed in with its uh, heroes and villains, swords and sorceries in space type format, which sort of precludes getting really deep and really interesting, as much as Star Wars fans want uh like for example there always has to be a war there always has to be a villain (laughs) uh that's just the way it is every piece of star wars there's always an empire and there's always kind of a a rebel a rebellion or republic and it's the same with star wars the old republic but perhaps the republic and the sith empire is the most interesting iteration of that kind of approach uh yeah i I would say and especially at the the seeing all of these people at the height of their power uh i do think at times that uh knights of the old republic the first one is is still very much in that star wars bent that good is good and evil is evil 
and at t- times you can feel feel the writers sort of wanting to push that further. Yeah, right. Like there, eventually in the game, you you run into an older Jedi named Jolie Bindo who represents that sort of gray area that like you know there isn't always good and there isn't always evil there's nuance to everything and you yeah you can tell that they were sort of using him as a proxy for maybe the adult in the room playing a star wars game like look everybody it's it's not always so black and white here and uh yeah i i really hope that some of the the newer Star Wars stuff that we're seeing, this is totally going off in left field, but like the newer Star Wars stuff we're going to see is going to hopefully kind of bridge that gap a little bit too. Like, you know, the force isn't always a thing of absolute goodness and there's not always going to be an absolute evil in the universe. So how do we live with the difference, I guess? Or- yeah. And, and, and I think Knights of the Old Republic too, as was able to do more of that. Yeah. Um, with characters like Baudur, who was a good guy, but also invented a thing that d- killed a bunch of people. So while the end result might have led to Galaxy's Peace, he himself has a lot of guilt, despite being on the right side. He was the um, Ozymandias of that game. Right. So it, it's, uh, I, I think old Knights of the Old Republic is, sort of bridging that gap against more nuanced storytelling and what Star Wars was at the time. Um, whereas it was a, sort of the step that allowed Knights of the Old Republic 2 to really go farther. Also had an LGBTQ uh, character in Juhani, which was pretty remarkable for Star Wars at that time, because it took a very long time for Star Wars to ever officially kind of announce uh acknowledge lgbt people um in this case it was juhani did you guys ever use juhani in your party uh my party was always all jedi once i had the option so my group at towards the end was the main character bastula and juhani as as my my crew so yeah same yeah it definitely wasn't this you couldn't have the same kind of in-depth gay relationship that you could in kind of subsequent Bioware games, but it was notable that there was a character that could even be considered a, a lesbian, um, even it, even if it doesn't really go that in-depth. Um, and it kind of speaks to the way that Bioware, kind of speaks to Bioware's willingness to play with the conventions of Star Wars in kind of a positive way, I would say. Yeah, which is really weird, because given that Star Wars, most of the races are alien, they probably shouldn't even work in that way, but it's always like part of that being an old serial and whatnot, and where Lucas started and the time he started in. Um, So yeah. And I think Star Wars fans would flip for the wrong reasons. If, you know... (laughs) They they did. They did indeed flip. Yeah. yeah. So, so Knights of the Old Republic was also interesting in that it kind of introduced people to the linear slash nonlinear approach to quest giving, where you had a lot of smaller quests, but you also had a handful of really big quests that you could kind of tackle in the order that uh, you desired. And I'm curious, like, what quests in particular really stood out to you guys? Uh, what What about you, John? 
Well, um, you know, I just replayed the beginning of the game pretty recently, and I, I really love, um, you know, you run into um, this woman in, a, in an apartment building early on, and I mean, this is really an in, inconsequential quest. It's a very basic side quest. Um, you run into a woman in an apartment building, and the first planet that you kind of fall into, which is part of the, the overall framing quest of the game. And she's like, hey, I, you know, this this mob boss, this local mob boss has been trying to flirt with me and it's been getting out of hand. And, and when I rebuked him, he put a bounty on my head, which was really extreme. But um, so she sends you off to or, or you kind of t- sort of take it upon yourself to solve her problem. Either I'll pay off the bounty or I'll muscle this mob boss and I'm not letting, you know, giving it giving it up or something like that. But you run into um other characters that are like, Hey, I'll kill her for you. And I'll just give you a cut of it. So you don't have to to deal with this. And that's just something I had never run into before when playing a game like that. And that's, it's something I keep thinking back on every time I I play the game. Like this is the first time I had seen a quest where like I had a lot of different outcomes and a lot of different ways that I could deal with it. So if you went all in, in your character creator on charisma and persuasion, you could talk your way out, you know, you could you could meet up with this this low level crime lord and, and talk your way out of it and just say, hey, look, just give up on it. I'll persuade you to, to do that. But like you have to know early in the game that this is something that you want to do, because like anything lower than the highest level persuasion stats that you can get, you won't be able to pull it off or you, you know, you could fight it out with this guy, which could give you more items and more experience possibly. But it's just a different outcome and you can meet other characters that can do these things for you. And, and that that's always kind of stood out for me. Uh, for me, uh, I guess it's probably too easy to say the Revan reveal, uh, where you are revealed to have been sort of the architect behind all of this trouble. Uh, other than that, probably I'd say, uh, I don't know what the quest name is, uh, but it, w- it was like the mysterious box, uh, which is uh, sort of this mind prison from a previous civilization. And uh, whoever opens the box is sort of trapped in there. And then the only way to get out is to use sort of possess the body of the next person that comes to open it. And it's sort of this mental riddle game between you and the guy who's currently trapped in the box. I always thought that was an interesting side quest. Sort of like, I was about to say out of the box. <laughs> Zing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it was it was definitely something unique at the time. I It occurs to me that Star Wars, the Knights of the Old Republic was our first chance to really play in the Star Wars universe, uh, to treat it sort of as a sandbox, because I think that Going back to 1977, when the original Star Wars came out, people just wanted to go into this universe. It seemed fun. And we had many video games and pieces of media afterward. We had books. We had comics. We had TIE Fighter, which was my perfect personal Star Wars, favorite Star Wars game. We had Rebel Assault. We had Jedi Knight. Uh, The year that Star Wars The Old Republic came out, we also got Star Wars Galaxies, which was the MMORPG, which was another game that quote-unquote lets you play in the Star Wars universe, but even though it 
was very, I don't know, like weirdly deep in the way that you could, in the way that it presented Jedi and professions and being able to build a, a piece of your universe. Star Wars, the Knights of the Old Republic felt more Star Wars and probably because it had a story, probably because it had characters who felt like fit in with the Lucasfilm slash LucasArts type kind of archetypes and just it was our first chance to really build a character and truly become immersed in the Star Wars universe in an interactive way outside of kind of the tabletop uh, world and in that respect I think that's pretty remarkable don't you think yeah, I I mean, getting back to Star Wars Galaxies, Mike, did you ever play that? Uh, I did, and I was about to make a comment. Uh, people who talk about grind, Dude, uh, yeah, <laughs> you miss you miss what true grind was. Oh, that Those was early MMOs, man. Um, but that game is fascinating to read about. It was a pain in the ass to play. Um, but I think you're right, Cat, in that. The Knights of the Old Republic sort of refined the experience and gave you more of a, because there was a specific overall mission to complete and there was an end game in mind, I, I think that really distilled a lot of what could have made Galaxies a really great game. But the des- I can't remember the, the guy's name, but the designer of, one of the designers for Star Wars Galaxies did this crazy long tell-all blog a bunch of years ago. Um, I did a story for the Guinness world records gamers edition a couple of years ago on star Wars RPGs. And I researched all this stuff and it was like his plans for how like the first couple of years of the game were going to go. And the first year it pulled, he pulled it off. It was like, look, you can be a bar owner. If you want, you can never touch combat for as long as you play this game. And I'm like, and it's boring as hell doing that. But just the way he had just kind of let the inmates run the asylum is totally fascinating, but in practice, it was an absolute drag to play. And I really love that Knights of the Early Republic came out close to the same time to kind of show you that, like, you can do, yes, those large overall, you can live in this world, as, as you were saying, but, like, it gives you something to to latch onto, to go for, and it gives you a point. Yeah. So one of the things that we always do with this series is we always pick our favorite moment from Star Wars Knights World the Old Republic. And Mike, you already uh, talked about it. That's the Darth Revan reveal. And I, I think that's the most famous aspect of Star Wars the Old Republic or Knights of the Old Republic, just because it at that moment, like you're doing a light side playthrough, you're doing a dark side playthrough. It's falling into that kind of dichotomy of which side you on. Uh, morale the morale choice was very much a thing in 2004. And then it kind of turns everything on its head, right? Because the second you find out that you're a Revan, it's almost like it didn't matter that you're on the light side and you were a goody two shoes this entire time. You were a monster all along. Yeah. And it, and it works because it, it recontextualizes um, what character you were playing before then. If you were playing a good guy, then it's, you weren't always evil. It is the circumstances that happened in Revan's past that made him who he was. And you can change that. If you were going back to that, then it was Revan's philosophy was always correct. And you were just returning to form because, 
uh, you know, either you always evil or the galaxy always pushed you in that way. And I, I think that really worked in a way that can only really work like once or twice. Like you can't sort of really do that again. Uh, it didn't so much work as well in KOTOR 2. Yeah, they kind of went back to the well a little bit <laughs> in the second game for that. But Yeah, it, it just, uh, like, I, I think KOTOR 2's strength on that side is Kreia, which I think she works far better in sort of exploring that sort of boundary between good and evil. Whereas the main character sort of doing the Revan thing again didn't quite work. Yeah. But I think Knights of the Old Republic is but probably the last People really like KOTOR with... 2, though. I think people like KOTOR 2 f- more for the other characters outside of the main character. Like, KOTOR 2's supporting cast is more interesting than KOTOR 1's. Uh, it's, you can't pick anything other than the Revan reveal, and I think it's the only, or maybe the last video game to ever use Amnesia for good. <laughs> so I don't think any video game since has, you know, it, the KOTOR reveal kind of ruins it for everybody that you find out that you've been maybe evil all along. But yeah, I mean, it was such a good rug pulling moment, right? Um, and especially just replaying the beginning of the game again, kind of recently seeing how well they, they dupe you into thinking that um, you're just some schmuck who just happens to be a good a good soldier at the beginning of the game. It's a, it's a really, really good twist, and it's played out so, so well. Yeah, it's probably one of the all-time famous twists. Or, or, is there a better twist in video game history than that one? I'm sure there has to be. I just can't think of it off the top of my head. Yeah. Like I'm I sure ran our readers, into some. Our, I'm sure, our listeners will find a twist that's better, like for us, and we'll be just, like facepalm and go, "Well, of course." Yeah, like I, I, I think I forget if Planescape Torment came out before or after, but I played mm. Torment after. So for me, it was like, "Oh, this is a great twist," but again, sort of in the context of I had already paid Knights of the Old Republic. So yeah, Bioshock maybe. Would you kindly? Oh. That's a good one. That that's a really good one. Uh, so, uh, and who are your favorite character? Who's your favorite character? Would you say in Knights of the Old Republic? Uh, in the first one, I'm gonna say HK47 for humor purposes, and Jolie Bendo just because he's so weird. <laughs> Just like he's this weird hobo Jedi guy who is a gray Jedi. So he's like, ah, you know, light, dark. Yeah. Um, but he's sort of out on his own, but he's also like an old black man. So, so, uh, I, I think he was probably one of my favorite characters, even though I did not use him as a party member all that much. Yeah. He's like the anti Obi-Wan and that's, kind of why i like him but um yeah hk 47 and i like bastila she's a little bland but um she was good in my party i can tell you that so ultimately 
I, I've seen some people claim that Knights of the Old Republic is mostly famous because it was one of the kind of the first CRPGs to really truly make the jump over to console in a way that allowed it to break into the mainstream. That it was a lot of people's first experience with Bioware. That, in, but in some ways, Bioware has moved past Knights of the Old Republic and gone on to bigger and better things. Do you? agree with that sentiment or do you feel like knights of the old republic kind of still holds up and stands on its own i i think knights of the old republic still plays well i i don't play it every year i, I think the last time i played it was like two two years ago you can play it on your tablet now yeah that's that's a little weird but <laughs> um <laughs> i i played it two years ago on steam and i i think it still holds up i, I definitely uh, wouldn't be opposed to a remaster or, hey, if you want to make a new game in that universe, I would be perfectly fine with that considering, hey, EA, you have the only Star Wars license available right now. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. I keep forgetting that Bioware is owned by EA. Ugh. Yeah, I mean... God, EA bought Bio EA got a hold of the Star Wars license and it seemed like a no-brainer that they would go ahead and immediately make a KOTOR and they haven't. It seems yeah. like they've got to be backed into a corner first or something. I don't get it. As they I mean Star Wars the Old Republic was pitched as what, Star Wars the Knights of the Old Republic three through six <laughs> and kind of the final word on the series. And the Old Republic sure did some interesting things and it did have a ton of story in it, but I think a lot of people would just, in this day and age, would just love a straight-up Knights of the Old Republic sequel. And it's, But it doesn't seem like it's going to happen so long as EA is locked in on kind of multiplayer platforms and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think yeah. the hope for a, a single-player Star Wars game coming from EA is long dead. I don't think that's ever going to happen. God, that's such a bummer. Isn't it? Man, I was like sitting here slagging earlier on kind of the Star Wars universe, but it really is such a fabulous video game playground just because it's so visually distinctive. The universe is a lot of fun to be in. Everybody loves a good lightsaber, the sound effects, the characters uh, that it is just legit. It is genuinely killing me to see EA <laughs> botch it this way. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little surprised that Star Wars itself was sort of from pulp serials, sci-fi pulp serials. And I'm a little surprised that uh, in an era when Mass Effect has failed so hard to sort of keep itself around, that other developers like larian or obsidian aren't really like stepping up to take that because that's such a easy way to differentiate yourself because you can still play around with the fantasy tropes but you're not looking like a straight fantasy crpg and i'm 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 just always shocked that there's no one out there that's like oh i we should do something with that i guess I guess fantasy like is an easier sell for a lot of people. I don't know because mm -hmm. sci-fi falls into that nerd category a little bit. Well, we're gonna like, get anthem, so. so anthem may yeah. do something. God, I just can't give a damn about anthem. 
I, I, I'm going to play it when it comes out. I'm certainly going to be interested in it, but everything about it just screams destiny light. I know lights with a, it's destiny light (laughs) with more of a storytelling bent. And it just doesn't, it seems very bereft of everything that I ever kind of liked out of Bioware. And the aesthetic is so boring, but we'll see. Uh, as for whether or not KOTOR stands up, I will say that looking at the Bioware catalog through over the years, I think that KOTOR 2 uh, was half-finished and required a ton of modding to really do justice. I think and in, that was Obsidian in any case, but in, uh, I think Jade Empire is a weird black sheep of Bioware RPGs. I look at the Mass Effect series... And we put Mass Effect 1 on this list um, a, a, a little bit higher than Knights of the Old Republic, in part because I, I just think that the turn-based kind of, the semi-turn-based strategy of uh, KOTOR, the semi-real-time, semi-turn-based real action of KOTOR just holds up better than the action of, say, Mass Effect, which Mass Effect did a lot of really cool things. It's beloved. It's... It's stuck in the institutional memory. It tells a great story, but I would rather play Massive. I would rather play Kotor right now, and I think Mass Effect two and three went a little too far into the the FPS section. And then after that, it just kind of like was a mess, right? I mean, we had the old Republic, which was this kind of lukewarmly received MMORPG, and we had. Uh, the Dragon Age series, which has always seemed a little, like, tepid. Like, it has a fan base, but it's never broken out in quite the same way as KOTOR or Mass Effect to the point that I have a hard time putting one of those games on this list. Um, and more recently, Mass Effect Andromeda has been a total flop. So it, we feel, it feels like KOTOR was the beginning of a truly special period for for bioware and i think a lot of people wish that we could have that back i'm definitely one of them um i kotor is really the game that sort of codified how bioware made rpgs going forward so there was like a framing story and then they gave you choices of other places that you could go but you had to sort of check them off the list and then go back to the framing story and then there were side quests that you can do um like mass effect did that Dragon Age games have done that. So that really sort of te- set the template for for a lot of the stuff that they were planning for in the near term and the long term until basically, you know, Dragon Age 2 was what came and went. And I think for that alone, it it still holds up. So if you're into that kind of game, I think it still plays really, really well. Um, I'm personally a Dragon Age fan. I, I mean... There have been some serious highs and serious lows for me, but um, I really, really want Bioware to come back and make something really, really freaking good again. It kills me to see that that studio has withered so badly. Yeah, and and you brought up Mass Effect. I'm not Mass Effect. Uh, Jade Empire, and uh, it's the black sheep for a lot of people, but I still, I still enjoy it. And that and that's another one of those things where like. Jade Empire stands out because you never get that kind of setting in RPGs. That's true. Like, yeah. like what we get is 
fantasy, like vaguely, usually uh, uh, European European fantasy, fantasy or we get uh, post-apocalyptic. Uh, post-apocalyptic, cy- cyberpunk, or straight sci-fi. Right. Uh, but like the martial arts thing, or, or even the, the pulp sci-fi, like there's so much more we can do with settings in terms of RPGs that going back to the same thing is, and, and like, like just RPGs in general, like I, I not a big fan of Final Fantasy 15, but the thing that I liked about it was this sort of real world Final Fantasy mix up. Like that was interesting. And if you're making a game in an RPG, like having an interesting setting is like half of the way there to selling your game. That and a good soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. All right. Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. That's number 12 on our top 25 RPG list. Uh, go check out our ongoing list over on us gamer. Uh, we are moving right along and hopefully we'll be on to number 11 next week. And thanks to John and Mike for coming on to talk about it. Okay, Nadia, we are back and we are going to do the mailbag as usual. Last week we talked about The World Ends With You and we reviewed Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Let's see what the commenters say. Tetragrammatron says, as a huge fan of the DS game, I have to say that the Switch version does lose something of the purity of the original's brilliance. The World Ends With You makes a point of using every one of the DS's features and it's very obvious that little attempt was made to come up with the equivalents here. There are things that can be done with the HD rumble, pin controls, and so on. But I'll forgive failures of imagination, pun not intended, because the Switch version has co-op multiplayer, and it's the most amazing thing. Sure, the partner's only got three skills that can't be swapped, but playing with a buddy completely changes the experience, frees you up to take risks, and experiment with loadouts much or more or earlier than you would. Yeah, I've actually thought about picking up The World Ends With You just so that I can play with my girlfriend. Yeah, I have it. I have to play it. I'll probably give it a try after Valkyria Chronicles 4. Um, it's a good point about the how it used every part of the DS, be, uh, so to speak, uh, because this was also at a time when developers had no idea what to do with the DS other than, you know, hey, let's scribble random things uh, before you can beat this Castlevania boss, and it was really annoying, but no, the World Answer 2 did a really good job making actual use of the dual screens and the stylus. Yes, this was at a time when what the DS had basically everything short of a bicycle bicycle horn and you had <laughs> it had a it had a microphone it had two screens it had a touch screen that you could draw on and developers were like we're doing it wrong if we don't use every single one of these features yep yep and they sure you did. had weird things like the ninja gaiden being played in portrait mode for some reason oh right that why did people do things like that like i guess they had no idea what they were doing but it was so annoying it was it kind of worked once in a while like with brain age and when you would turn your uh, ds like a book but no the world ends with you did a really good job making sure like okay this is what you're doing with the ds this is all very sensible it was just a really good game all, all told 
I think it's just a developer's natural instinct to want to use all of the tools at their disposal. Like when they get a new piece of technology, like you are seeing with VR right now, uh, there is a subset of developers who are just going to naturally want to see what possibilities they can possibly get. And that's why we got a game like The World Ends With You, even if it doesn't always work, even if it's kind of slightly insane, right? (laughs) Yes. Uh, Kerosene Blast says, a sequel to The World Ends With You would be great if it were a new story set in a different part of Tokyo. Kat, what area of Tokyo would you like to see in a possible The World Ends With You 2? I would want it set in Kansai or uh, Sapporo or something like that. Uh, Basically, that would be Osaka, Kyoto. Oh, I see. So that would be Western Japan. Kyoto is East Kansai is west. So, ah. and if you expanded it and had it encompass uh, Osaka, Kyoto, and uh, Kobe, that, that could be a lot of fun. Yeah, I know um, Kobe and Sapporo. That's up north, isn't it? Uh, Kobe is next to Osaka and oh, okay. and Kyoto, but Sapporo is very far up north. It's basically, I think, the same latitude as Minnesota. Uh, very so, cold and very snowy. So, Gino Mizuguchi is from uh, Tetsuya Mizuguchi, the creator of Res, is from Sapporo, actually. So is uh, Iwata was from Sapporo as well. I always liked uh, the Nippon Ham fighters because, for a few reasons, for some reason, I am have a weakness for the word ham, <laughs> as demonstrated <laughs> by the fact that I named my cat Hamish Aww. and started shortening it to Ham. Uh, the fact that I like West Ham United. Um, and it's just the, the the name Nippon Ham Fighters just amused the hell out of me back in the day. So. And they were basically like the Minnesota Twins of Japan. And they actually, except that they actually won a thing. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Kochambra says, so they're still doing the present day stuff in Assassin's Creed? Are they still using the same lame main character? No, <laughs> he is long gone. Yeah, I haven't I admit- heard of him in ages. I admit that I've only played AC3, but I found it pleasant enough, except for the animus sections. It's a cool concept, and as Mike points out, it allows them to get away with the more video gamey or fantastic stuff without breaking the illusion of realism. But for me, as implemented, it just doesn't work. It periodically pops up to take away from the engrossing historical recreation and this fascinating open world, only cram you in these tiny levels with the most boring main character in the history of video games. (laughs) Then you have to jump through some hoops so you can earn the privilege of watching some utter nonsense about aliens. The animus sections are the main reason why I haven't bothered to play any more AC. Maybe they got better in later games? I think that Mike can probably speak to that, but it seems Mm -hmm. as if... The Animus in AC Odyssey in particular plays a pretty small role, all things considered. But on a brighter note, your The World Ends With You review really sold me on the game, and I love the fact that it's not one of those 60-plus hour RPGs. I do enjoy them, but after devoting more than 100 hours to Octopath Traveler, I'm in the mood for something shorter and maybe a little less traditional. You are a better person than I am, Cochambra. Yeah, like I can't exactly say, oh, well, you know, I moved on, too, because after Octopath Travel, I put, like, another 100-plus hours into Dragon Quest Eleven. You sure did, but you were reviewing it, so... True, but I was also just, just, like, playing the hell out of it as well. 
GamerLaw says, after playing the Switch version of The World Ends You for almost 10 hours, I feel comfortable calling it a competent port with the greatest appeal for those who have never experienced a DS version. The up visuals and optional co-op are nice, but by themselves, I am not sure they warrant the equally up price of $50. <laughs> Moreover, I wonder whether first-time players who jump into co-op will finish the game wishing they had been able to experience the game's narrative and character arcs solo. The 10 hours I have spent with Final Remix leave me convinced that a 3DS version with enhanced graphics and the New Day content was the way to go. But for all the clamoring that the 3DS is dead and everything must be on Switch, perhaps that what is what we would have received? DS controls could have been retained and the two-screen dynamic might have captured a new generation of gamers. I don't know about a new generation of gamers, but I would have played a 3DS version. It would have yeah, been interesting. But uh, let's face it, I think Square Enix took the easiest route possible and just put the iOS version on the Switch and added a couple of things and called it a day. They're kind of bad about that. Yeah, you're not wrong. I, I think that the iOS version getting put onto the Switch... Uh, that's that's the flip side, right? Of everybody mm-hmm. clamoring, why isn't this on Switch? Why are you putting it on 3DS, man? Well, well, we got our wish, and the little <laughs> monkey paw went <laughs> curled down. But at least we're playing it on TV, which isn't as bad, and it has co-op, and it's just it's another way to enjoy a classic RPG in my mind. Yeah. Axel Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Follow us on all of the social medias. As I already said, I'm at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. If you want to talk to us, you can send us a line over on social media or leave a note on our show notes that are up on the site over on U.S. Gamer or drop me a line at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. There's plenty of stuff over on the site right now that is of interest to be read uh nadia what 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 have you written this week oh we mentioned the mother three thing i wrote that um my valkyrie chronicles four piece is up as well um i wrote a funny little story earlier today about um people who broke who committed actual b and e to play uh nes games back in the 80s like uh, i found a story on reddit from someone who said they broke into a neighbor's house through a dog door to uh, to play uh, NES, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can believe that, because even though I never went that far, um, there have been times where I've, like, heard someone playing Nintendo in the back, in, like, going through their backyard or whatever, and I wanted to just kind of run in and play, and be like, I want to play too, I want to play too. Uh, so I, I just, like, kind of wrote a little recollection about that. Yes, I have Xenoblade Chronicles 2 Postmortem. That's right, I do have that up, that's actually, um, yeah, that has some really interesting little bits in it, uh, particularly how we're probably not going to be seeing Xenoblade Chronicles X on the Switch anytime soon. Uh, yeah, that's... so go... Yep, she went and taught to Tetsuya Takahashi, so make sure to go and check that out. And finally, Dark Souls is out on the Switch, and Dark Souls Remaster is on the Switch. We have updated our review for that. Okay. We'll be back again next week. And uh, thanks to John Learned and Mike for coming on the show. But for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening. And until next time, happy adventuring. <laughs>